The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is my honor to welcome my guest, Dr. Everett Murphy. He is a retired pulmonologist who practiced pulmonary and critical care medicine for 35 years and three years developing a hospital-based palliative care program in the Kansas City metro area. Dr. Murphy received his Doctor of Medicine from the University of Oklahoma, completed his internship in internal medicine at the University of Kansas, a residency in pulmonary diseases, and a fellowship in pulmonary diseases at the University of Kansas. He is board certified in both internal medicine and pulmonary diseases and is a fellow of both the American College of Chest Physicians and the American College of Sports Medicine. Today, he actively works to prevent the spread of confined animal feeding operations in Missouri and beyond, and we are going to discuss the connections between CAFOs, racism, and the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome, Dr. Murphy. Glad to be here. Thank you. Well, it is such a pleasure to have you. You know, I feel like policymakers should listen first and foremost to physicians. And I am always amazed and somewhat appalled by the fact that physicians don't have the last word when it comes to creating policies that impact health. And I know that you've been interested in confined animal feeding operations. We'll talk a little bit about that. But tell me first, how did you become interested in pulmonary medicine? What was it about the lungs that intrigued you? Good question. I was influenced. I was doing my residency in internal medicine and rotated onto a pulmonary critical care unit. And at the time, there was a a person who became worldwide famous named Roger Bone, who um, influenced me a lot. And then the department chairman came to me at some point and said, would you like to be a pulmonary fellow? Of course, my mouth dropped open, and I said, when can I start? Wow. So it it was being influenced by very profound leaders in the field. Right. Well, you and know, at the point, it was a very early into the whole field of pulmonary medicine. And I mean, even when I was doing my fellowship, we were first coming up with the term adult respiratory distress syndrome, which is what happens with people with COVID-19 illnesses when they get far advanced pulmonary problems. So it's led to have a lot of empathy for the whole issue. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, my experience with pulmonary disease was at the Veterans Hospital. That was my first job as a dietitian. And I remember the biggest issues that we were facing with regard to pulmonary diseases had to do with just smoking. And then, of course, the relationship between lungs and heart and whole system failures. So it was um, an interesting lesson for me to see how the diseases progressed. There wasn't a big role for me as a dietitian, but it was interesting, and it it led me down a path to want to prevent smoking and to see how young people were influenced to take up cigarettes in the first place. Well, from an epidemiologic standpoint, during my years of work, we really only, for most of us, 
clinicians and the community practices, we really only thought about smoking being a big factor as in terms of causing lung disease. Although we, I mean, we explored that we were primarily dealing with the impact of the years of smoking. But that whole field is dramatically changed for a lot of reasons, uh, and we have a much healthier respect for the epidemiologists who are leading us through this pandemic. Yeah. And that takes us not only to the topic of COVID-19, but also wherever you have a concentration of confined animals, we enter a whole realm of infectious disease, and many times they affect the lungs. So you've got dust, you've got antibiotic-resistant infections based on the fact that these animals receive antibiotics regularly to promote growth and to a lesser extent prevent disease. Tell me how you became interested in looking at animal agriculture as it relates to your profession. Well, when I uh, decided to stop practicing, I figured I was just going to stop practicing. But in anticipation, we moved part-time to the countryside and became acquainted with our neighbors. And uh, we became aware of the potential for populating our county with uh, CAFOs, or concentrated animal feeding operations. And I didn't even know what CAFO meant when I first heard about it. And then at the urging of a friend who was in her early 90s at the time to get me to the health board to try to convince them of the community of the health hazards, and at the urging of my wife, I went there. And they were very reluctant at first, but by pushing and pushing, we were able to then get them involved. And, And that propelled me to learn and it was a very steep learning curve because uh, I really hadn't even thought about this. I had I had to do a lot of self-education and then a communication with people throughout the country to figure out what was going on and how it would impact us in our county. Mm-hmm. And so in addition to the foul odors that come from these it, this industrial method of food production, there is also water pollution. And I had the pleasure of interviewing you for an article that I wrote And I have a quote from you. It says, not only are the odors from factory livestock farms offensive, but individuals living within three miles of industrial animal operations are at risk for serious life-shortening illnesses and permanent disabilities. Tell me about that. That's a great question. The studies that growing in the last 10 years, at least within China and South Korea and the United States, uh, looked at how far away can you be safe? The, a lot of the European studies, because of their dense population, they were studying neighbors who lived maybe 500 to 1,000 kilometer meters away from these CAFOs. But through the epidemiology studies, found that about three miles is the cutoff mark where safety is a problem. Within the three miles is a problem. Beyond the three miles, people seem, in most cases, to be able to avoid the respiratory problems that are associated with the capable protection of the bioaerosols and the particulate matter, and plus the, uh, any of the chemicals that are emissions that come from the CAFOs. So at 3.1 miles is really, it seems to be a marker that people are using now. Wow. And there are no restrictions, as far as I'm aware of, that limit that distance between one of these concentrated animal feeding operations and where somebody lives. I'm assuming that maybe different states vary, but I'm also assuming that the industry 
probably wants to preempt any kind of regulatory restriction on distance. Well, I can only speak to our Missouri state, well, somewhat to some surrounding states where I work work with people in Kansas. But the lobbying institutions, uh, because they're generally uh, like the Farm Bureau and the Cattle Association, the Hog Farmers or Hog Raisers Association, they don't want to deal with this because it will affect a profit, and it's a profit-directed philosophy. So any message that comes that will interfere with that, then they want to get rid of the messenger. And so they totally ignore that. And because they're well-stocked with money and powerfully influenced, at least within the state and at the national level, with the EPA, with formerly Scott Pruitt, they've been able to cripple any health concerns and any legislation. Mm-hmm. And I've heard the lobbyists for these organizations say, well, you know, these big industrial farms, and they don't like to call them industrial farms, you know, they like to call them family farms. But yeah. in reality, it is a large concentration of animals. And they say, hey, these farms are going to bring jobs, it's going to bring money to poor rural communities. Is that what you've seen? Well, what I've read about and uh, I'm aware of that uh, the, the opposite actually occurs. They employ very few people. They often employ immigrants and pay them poorly. And the immigrants are so fearful, at least under this current administration, that they aren't going to raise any concerns. They end up with scaring off the neighbors or and the neighbors often because of the ill effects, both emotionally and physically leave their property. The property values drop considerably. And so the tax base for the counties drops off. And so you end up with a lot of empty spaces with no people and no tax base. So you have unhealthy people, poorly educated people because they're so sick and just a bad situation for the outcome. If we look at two states in particular, North Carolina and Iowa, it has devastated, at least eastern part of North Carolina, it's devastated these areas. And so society as a whole are crippled by this. Yeah. And it's so sad because I think at least in Iowa, I don't know that there's a a canoeable or swimmable stream left. Their concentration of hog factory farms has been so extensive. And I think that it also pits neighbor against neighbor. So where you used to have a cohesive, friendly rural community, you've got less people living there, and you've got maybe uh, one farmer pitted against another, and that can't make for a healthy environment. Exactly. In our county, it's actually uh, caused a family, even family within a family problem, where somebody wants to bring in a CAFO and the family member that's opposed to it, also a farmer, uh, knowledgeable of all the problems associated with has been fighting, so it's been within a family. In our county, also, those people that are choose to ignore all of the problems associated with the CAFOs and looking strictly at the profit, they become physically, literally physically and, and litigiously intimidating to people who are trying to just bring some balance to the whole movement. In our county, our primary interest is really just saying that we need some rules so you don't make people sick and they don't have to move away. Uh, because the industry worldwide, China, Korea, Africa, Europe, the United States, have failed to come out with technology that protects the neighbors. It's a great idea. I mean, they want to, people are demanding more and more pork or other forms of meat. And yet the industry has not been able to keep up with 
the need to protect the people that work there or live around there. Mm-hmm. And there's this thinking that we have to raise animals in this way in order to have affordable meat in the supermarket. Although if you speak to people who are really working with small farmers, you realize that that's just one more propaganda message, that we need this kind of efficient factory farm in order to feed the world, where actually we're really poisoning and sickening the world in the process. Which leads to the discussions about the uh, zoonotic infections that occur, or occurring over the, been occurring forever, but uh, we're recognizing them better for the, especially in the current problems with the coronaviruses in swine and other animals that are then causing big problems worldwide. And then, and in cases of MERS and SARS, where the it's no longer just a animal to person, it then becomes human to human transmission of disease. Mm-hmm. And again, it's still the head and sand approach by these uh, lobbying institutions in state and Washington levels and even local levels. They don't want to acknowledge that. They want to change the subject. Right. And, you know, what I used to think about a lot when it came to these concentrated animal feeding operations was antibiotic resistance. And I really wasn't paying much attention to the pandemic risks. But, oh, my goodness, the more I learn about the interface of many animals who are not healthy and raised, you know, in a humane way, the more I learn about the way bacteria and viruses can go from animal to human, it really makes me recognize that we've got an opportunity with this crisis to truly change the way we raise our food. Right. With the concept of reassortment, where you put two viruses within a cell, they then mutate, and then for where they individually may not be a risk for humans, they can, can change enough to where they are a risk for humans. And so it's just a matter of time. The current concern from the Johns Hopkins uh, group is about this G4 virus, it's a swine virus in, in China, and they're just very apprehensive about this mutating to being human-to-human, that new pandemic. Right. If you look back at, uh, I became minimally acquainted with Dr. Jones, who's a um, veterinary epidemiologist at the Royal Veterinary Academy in London, and her study in 2015 came out describing historically what these very, how these viruses then become human problems. And her point is that when you concentrate all these animals into these industrial farms, it's just a matter of time until something happens. And they're like a culture media just waiting for somebody to plate something on them. Mm. And then it grows, and then it expands, and then it gets into the human population. So the system, you would think the efficient system of a CAPO would be a good deal, cheaper, et cetera, et cetera. But because we can't control the manure and the products of the manure and urine, then it gets totally out of hand. Right. And especially in light of climate change, where we see so many more flooding incidents, I really worry about the kind of pollution that we see throughout our waterways. But let me just take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio We are speaking with Dr. Everett Murphy. He is a retired pulmonologist, practiced in Kansas City, in the Kansas City metro area for over 35 years. And today he's been involved in preventing the spread of concentrated animal feeding operations in Missouri. 
and beyond. And he is a wealth of information when it comes to looking at how we raise our food and how we can connect those dots to racism and our current COVID-19 pandemic. You know, Dr. Murphy, I wanted to talk about the racism piece of this because I did a little research in preparation for our interview. And I was looking to see, you know, who works at these horrific facilities. And I found an excellent article from the Missouri Coalition of the Environment. It was an article about who do CAFOs employ? And according to the USDA, mostly we're looking at immigrant labor. So according to the USDA, 64% of farm laborers, graders, and sorters were Hispanic, and 55% were not born in the United States. That's as of 2018. So to your point, where you've got a population that's scared, especially heightened during this administration, they get sick. They're not properly protected. I think there were lawsuits making sure that these workers who were not only working on the farms themselves, but then in the processing plants, where they were shoulder to shoulder, not given adequate bathroom breaks, even really inhumane work with this frightened immigrant workforce, that opens up a whole other risk for disease spreading into communities. And that's what we're finding within our own state here in Missouri, where you've got these pockets of increasing COVID-19 infection, and you look and see, well, what are the industries there? And it's it's a meat processing plant. Right. Just right now, we have a hot spot in Marshall, Missouri, not far from where I live, and it's primarily Hispanic workers. And it's the same story time and time again. And the conditions are terrible, which leads to that. I've always been suspicious that the transfer from these corporate worlds like Tyson, Smithfield, JBS, etc., are transporting the disease in infected carcasses. But thus far, there's no data to support that. Interesting. Um, but I think, and everybody keeps telling me when I talk to them, well, it's just their working conditions. But I think the story was going to take some time for us to figure out if there's another component to it. Either way, they certainly are discriminated against mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the meat processing plants. Absolutely. And that is the racism piece of this puzzle. There's also communities, you know, where do these CAFOs go? They go to communities in North Carolina. You can look at poor rural communities that are largely black Here in the Midwest, they are white communities, but they are poor. So it's this exploitation of populations who really don't have a political voice or much say in policy, and they seem to be ramrodded where these businesses come in, whether it's the factory farm itself or the processing plant. You've got an exploited population that becomes at greater risk for contracting COVID-19 and any other disease of the day. One anecdote, which is pretty anecdotal, a few years ago, just a very, just a very few years ago, I was working in Iowa, helping out on a practice, and a urologist there owned a very large capo, and he said, you know, the Mexicans are the best people I've ever employed. They never complain, and they always work, no matter what the situation conditions are. And at the time, I didn't realize, but now in retrospect, I realized that the people didn't want to work there because it was so horrible. And the conditions were worse. Well, I think Julie Persenko, and I think she's at uh, Duke, in her study, there's two studies that are important. One is by Stephen, Steve Wing and Jill Johnson out of uh, Chapel Hill, looking at the complications or the 
with the industrial hog operations, but looking at the impact on the African-American, Hispanic, and American Indian population. And it's clear by that study that most of the capos that are in the eastern part of North Carolina are centered in not just poor, but poor uh, people of color communities. The poor white communities have very few compared to the people of color communities where these capos are placed. And it's uh, an intention uh, to put them there. And then, of course, their health care is poor, and so problems develop. And then in present Petrento's article, and these are just, uh, hers was just out this last fall, she looked at all-cause mortality in these communities where the capos were, and it was just amazing. It's clearly, they become sicker and die from all causes that have not been well defined. You know, first of the studies are observational. This is what we're seeing. And then ultimately we can figure out exactly why they're dying. So mm. I thought it was a, a very important article at the time. Yeah. And I think it's important for listeners to understand the risks that these industrial factories, farms, and processing plants bring to a community. And so that when we hear the propaganda messages like, oh, this is going to bring jobs, it's going to be great for your rural community, the messages that are spewed forth by the Farm Bureau and by the cattlemen, by the pork industry, that people raise a red flag when they hear those messages and say, wait a second, who owns these messages? Who is truly going to profit from these factory farms and processing facilities? And to find a better way. And so here we are at this critical point where we have an opportunity to really change the way we raise our food. And it's this pandemic that is forcing us to re-examine, and it's forcing us to look at all of the injustices in our food system. They've become wide open now, and so we have an opportunity. And I don't think that a lot of consumers realize that over 80% of the meat that's available to us, whether it's in a hospital, ironically, or in a supermarket, or in an institution, maybe a school, that meat is coming from an industrial source. And I think we have to say to ourselves, how can we find an alternative source? Do I know anybody who's raising meat in a more humane and safe manner? And can we not set up more infrastructure to support those smaller farmers and repopulate our rural communities? I think uh, also we probably ought to just very briefly talk about if we have the opportunity to talk about what it is that comes out of these capos that cause people at least respiratory problems. Or oh, many let's other do. Problems. Yes, tell us. Well, the problem is multifactorial, but one of them is that these feeding operations produce so much uh, manure and urine, it's said to be 13 times the amount that occurs with humans, and they have to figure out how to deal with that. So they put these in these, put the manure and urine into uh, lagoons that are either right underneath the barn or next to the barn. And in that manure there and urine, there are all kinds of things that we don't want, like the, as, as you related to the, uh, the antibiotics and then the bacteria that uh, become drug resistant to those antibiotics. But aside for that, then the bacteria break down and they release things like ammonia leading to ammonia nitrate, hydrogen sulfide, and those, the hydrogen sulfide is what predominantly causes the smell. They also release what's called a particular matter, which means people often refer to this hog dust or dust that can apply to any animal feeding operation, whether it's chickens or cattle or whatever. And that dust is so small, it's less than 2.5 microns in diameter, 
and you can inhale that, and nothing in your upper airway, your nose or your throat, will block that. So it gets into your lungs. And what's attached to that is what hurts you, not the dust itself, but what's attached. And those things that are attached are either bacteria or viruses or breakdown of the bacteria, which one of the elements is called endotoxin. And these elements that are, you're inhaling are extremely caustic to the lining of the bronchial tubes and then the air sacs called the alveoli. And that's what leads to the problems of asthma in children and adults, aggravating chronic obstructive lung disease known as emphysema or chronic bronchitis, and can lead to conditions called pulmonary fibrosis, which is a life-ending experience for those people, as well as making their primary lung disease worse and shortening their lives. And so these bioaerosols or emissions from these, whether they're blown out through the fan or from the lagoons, are devastating to kids and adults. And that's just the respiratory component to that, uh, not discussing the problem with water contamination in uh, the inner wells from uh, close to these spaces so, or these uh, CAFOs. But so the respiratory part is a really a big deal, and that's where my interest has been primarily. Have you found that your testimonies, because you are a pulmonologist, have been more effective in swaying local legislation and policies? I would think that the governor would want to be speaking with you regularly. Well, at least in our state, that doesn't occur. And, and actually, we're in I was expert witness in one lawsuit in our state uh, against the governor for some legislation. And generally, it's, it's the attorney general's office and the governor uh, are still being uh, impacted by the uh, big agriculture industry uh, lobbying groups. Our health director at the state level is, is a gynecologist and has, is not equipped to even know what a CAFO is, let alone deal with the bioaerosols. And so he doesn't offer any support at all. Hmm, that's such a shame. So no, it's been there's there's very little influence because you know money speaks and uh, we don't are not coming there with money just with ethics and health problems. Yeah, you know we just have a minute left, so I just want to leave you with that space to leave our listeners with anything that I may have failed to bring up. Well, I missed you before this. That I think dealing with this these issues like the health hazards and our current pandemic and our racism are tied together because for most people, unless they're, they've been impacted by this problem, living next to a CAFO or being a minority, African-American, Hispanic, or American Indian, it's invisible to most everybody. Nobody sees it, so if, they, if they're not impacted, they don't think about it. Well, the thing that's awakened us is now it's, it's affecting more people, and, the, and so people are becoming aware of this. But... When I've tried to get any uh, interest in this in the cities, like Kansas City, they don't want to hear about it because they say, you know, that's not a, this is not an important issue right now. We want to deal just with the pandemic, and they don't see the connections. It's a problem. It most certainly is. And I don't know if people are aware of this, but the American Public Health Association has actually called for a moratorium on building these facilities because of the risk to public health. So, And that was in November of 2019. So we've got good evidence to say enough, enough polluting our environment and harming people at a very critical time. Dr. Murphy, I just want to thank you so much for your time today and sharing your expertise 
In closing, I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Everett Murphy, retired pulmonologist who practiced pulmonary and critical care medicine for 35 years in the Kansas City metro area. And he is now, thankfully, volunteering his time to help prevent the spread of concentrated animal feeding operations in Missouri and beyond. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Murphy. You're most welcome. Thank you.